4. Pathways to Recovery First Steps Knowledge without treatment is like knowing the brand of refrigerator you're locked inside. Oh, that's interesting. It's not going to get me out of the fridge. John Moe, Minnesota When I say better, I mean I'm able to manage. Because everybody is not well every day. So, I have wellness tools that I use. The huge one is mindfulness and meditation. It changed my life, but it doesn't work by itself. I have to take medication. Brenda Adams, Kansas. The first couple years of my diagnosis, I saw it as a burden. I saw it as a failure. I saw it as a flaw. But over the years, it has transformed into something that has made me do things I could only have imagined. Puja Meta, North Carolina. There is good reason to have hope. People very often get better, no matter what mental health condition they have. The tools and proven strategies to help people thrive while living with a mental health condition range far and wide. Some are very specific to one condition, and others are general. Some are rooted in medical and professional interventions, and others draw on human strengths, be they artistic, athletic, spiritual, or vocational. Only you can discover which tools and strategies will work best for you. Every person's pathway is unique. However, communicating with and connecting to peers is a powerful tool for recovery for everyone. People who have taken the journey before can offer a lot of ideas about where to begin, what you might try, and what has worked most effectively for them. It's often best to take the long view. And if putting any of these ideas into action isn't something you feel you can do now, that's okay. You are not doing anything wrong. Many people find that having the energy and motivation to engage more proactively in recovery comes with time. The people I have talked to for this book shared stories of very difficult experiences along their recovery pathways, including overdoses, job loss, homelessness, incarceration, and more. Each of them also talked about how they eventually found recovery on their own terms. This chapter focuses on the more positive elements and most useful tools they discovered to help them navigate these challenges over time. This chapter can share only a limited number of stories, just to give you an idea of the diversity of successful approaches to living and recovering with a mental health condition. But some common elements and themes emerge that may be helpful to keep in mind as you begin your own journey. A central theme is that no one medication, therapy, lifestyle change, or relationship is likely to be a magic wand. For many people, recovery involves assembling a toolkit and learning which tools they need to use, how to use them, and when. And then using these tools to sustain recovery, which is an ongoing effort. Corinne Fox, a 28-year-old biracial woman residing in California who works in the entertainment industry and as a NAMI ambassador, provides a great example of how to build and personalize your toolkit. It can be as simple as opening a note on your phone. She explained, I'm so about building out a toolkit that works for you. I have my toolkit on my phone. It says, Corinne's Guide to Wellness. 
how I beat mental illness every day. Over the years, as I was going through the trial and error process of figuring out what actually worked for me, I would write down the things that did. Working out, I have four to five times a week. Meditation, every day. Therapy, weekly. Journaling, writing affirmations, workbooks, socializing with my friends two times a week. Expressive art, I must dance or write or act. I even have sleeping on the list, giving back, connecting with God. And I have it written down so specifically for me, because when you're going through a really tough time or an anxious period, it's hard to remember any of the tools you have. And I can ask, if I'm not feeling well, what I haven't done in a while, I know that these tools are tried and true. Often, tools come from two different worlds the medical model, and the recovery model. I explained in Chapter 2 how the system of diagnosing mental health conditions is rooted in a medical model focused on identifying symptoms or deficits from regular functioning. The professional approach to treating mental health conditions is rooted in this model as well. In the medical model, the deficits and symptoms of mental health conditions are managed with medical tools. Medications are a classic medical model tool, and they can often help with symptoms when used thoughtfully. Neurostimulation and some kinds of psychotherapy are other examples of important medical model tools. In Chapter 18, leading experts summarize recent thinking on some of the most effective and well-researched tools in this category. Mental health conditions are multidimensional human challenges, however, and whole-person recovery meaning recovery that goes beyond symptom relief, is often a long-term endeavor. A mental illness may be chronic or cyclical. It can remit for long periods and then reappear in response to the inevitable stresses and changes of life. Medications and treatments that reduce symptoms can make the journey easier, but they are not cures. And while reducing symptoms is vitally important, it's often not sufficient. Just as important to recovery are the pathways people have found to achieve the good things in life, such as peer support, relationships, vocation, spirituality, purpose, and fun. These creative approaches are strength-based and peer-driven, rather than symptom-based and professionally driven. They focus on not targeting isolated symptoms or deficits, but on building and living a good life. I'll refer to these as recovery model tools. Experts also develop these ideas in more detail in Part 4. In my experience, the most effective path to recovery often involves combining the best tools for treatment of your mental health condition that the medical model has to offer with recovery tools that focus on building and living the best possible life. This powerful both-slash-and, rather than either-or, approach has been transformative for many of the people I interviewed for this book and for so many others I know. Recovery Tools, the both and approach. In this chapter, you will hear in more detail how people define, describe, and conceptualize their own recovery. Broadly, recovery involves building a life, discovering one's strengths, finding a purpose, and being connected to a supportive community that can sustain you despite the symptoms you experience. 
When people are directly involved in designing their own plan, including defining recovery and wellness goals, choosing services that support them, and evaluating treatment decisions and progress, both the experience of care and outcomes are significantly improved. The recovery model concept in mental health was led by the late William Anthony, founding director of the Boston University Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation. I was fortunate to work in Boston and to learn from Dr. Anthony and his mentees. He focused on people's strengths, not their deficits, and on providing them with the support they needed to create the life they wanted as a whole person. Time has proved him right. After all, most people want to live a fulfilling life, not just experience symptom relief. Focusing too narrowly on alleviating symptoms, essentially on achieving an absence of a deficit rather than on creating a life, is the primary risk of a medical model-only framework. Fortunately, many mental health care professionals are now combining medical model tools and recovery model tools creatively and intentionally in developing approaches to treatment. Medical Model Tools There are a vast number of professionally driven approaches to addressing some of the symptoms and experiences of mental health conditions, largely rooted in research. Broadly, they fall into one of two categories, medications and neurostimulation. Talk therapy is a kind of bridge between medical model and recovery model tools in that it can be focused on symptom reduction on self-understanding, or on both. Here I have framed talk therapy as a medical model tool because it is delivered by professionals. These professional model tools also often work better in combination than they do individually to effectively treat mental health conditions. Medications. These are tools that may help with specific symptoms and are prescribed by specific types of providers. Primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, and, in few states, psychologists. Before taking medications, I encourage people to have a good understanding of the potential benefits and risks. One way to do that outside of the prescriber's office is at NAMI.org, where you'll find information on medication created by an independent group called the College of Psychiatric and Neurologic Pharmacists, CPNP. Information pages can be printed so that you can have them in hand when you meet with your prescriber. They offer easy-to-follow information about what uses the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, has approved a particular medication for, what its intended effects are, and what side effects you might encounter. The more you know, the better prepared you will be to make informed choices about medications in a shared decision-making process with your prescriber. The FDA has a formal approval process for each medication, and they approve medications to treat specific conditions according to specific criteria. The FDA also mandates that the company producing the medicine indicate the side effects and risks of taking it. The most concerning are summarized in what are called black box warnings, included in packaging for any medicine that requires them, a kind of stop sign for people to see before they proceed. It is legal for prescribers to prescribe medicines off-label, meaning to treat conditions that the FDA has not approved them for, 
but you should be sure to discuss with your prescriber why a medication is being recommended for you off-label and what is and is not known about it. The medicines are studied short-term, but they are taken over longer periods of time, so this creates a gap in knowledge. All medicines have side effects, and some of these effects, for example, the risks of weight gain and diabetes that can accompany the use of many antipsychotics, may require a proactive approach and is discussed by Gail Domit in Chapter 18. How to balance the effectiveness of certain medicines against their potential for side effects is another key issue to consider when assessing and developing your medical toolbox. Neurostimulation. This tool includes repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, and other approaches and works off the theory that there are brain circuits that can be activated to reduce symptoms. Sarah Hollingsworth Lizenby of NIMH discusses this in Chapter 18. Talk Therapy Also called psychotherapy, this tool can be focused on helping you reduce symptoms, medical model focus, or on helping you establish goals and deepen your understanding of yourself. Recovery model focus Talk therapy can take many forms. Some talk therapies were developed to treat specific conditions. For example, Exposure Response Prevention, ERP, for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. When that is the case, getting the right form of therapy from a formally trained professional matters. For many people, though, their relationship with the therapist is just as important as the type of therapy. There are different kinds of therapists with different kinds of training and many of them take a unique approach, drawing on training, continuing education, practice, and experience. Research also shows that you will likely benefit from therapy, regardless of what type it is, if you trust and feel understood by your therapist. Recovery Model Tools Recovery tools are activities and endeavors outside of professional treatment that help people with mental health conditions to care for themselves and build better lives. Some have been researched rigorously and are proven to be effective, including self-determined peer-led support models like the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, WRAP. Employment is another powerful recovery tool for many, and we now have an evidence-based cost-effective approach called Individual Placement and Support, IPS Supported Employment, that helps people with disabilities to become successfully employed. Cognitive training is also a powerful and well-researched tool that promotes success in employment. These recovery tools are also covered in more detail by experts in Part 4. Other recovery tools are more custom-designed and utilized by individuals in light of their own unique circumstances, interests, abilities, passions, and preferences. There is no easy way to summarize the long and beautiful list of recovery tools that people have found or created to help themselves deal with mental health challenges while remaining fully engaged with other aspects of their lives. These tools don't easily lend themselves to research study, but almost all the people I interviewed for this book discussed at least one that they have found hopeful. 
Their stories convey the diversity and importance of these tools and how they work, alongside the right tools from the medical model to provide relief and facilitate healing. Among them are regular exercise, which has been shown to be effective for alleviating anxiety and depression states, and healthy sleep patterns, which support regulation and overall health. Though historically underfunded, music and art interventions helped many of the interviewees. In future chapters, I'll also introduce people who have found healing through service and advocacy by being part of something bigger than themselves and giving to others with purpose. Faith and spirituality have been a special place for many, and some of the interviewees draw directly upon faith to help them make meaning of their experiences in their lives. Meditation, crafts, hobbies, and peer support groups are examples of recovery tools discussed in the coming chapters. The Wellness Recovery Action Plan, RAP. One of the true pioneers in identifying recovery tools and creating a recovery toolkit is Mary Ellen Copeland, now semi-retired and living in Vermont. She describes herself as a psychiatric survivor and a family member who has spent almost 40 years learning how people recover from mental health issues and sharing that information with others. Copeland started to develop what would become her signature contribution to that toolkit, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, WRAP, rep. When, relying solely on medical model ideas, she hit a dead end in her own recovery journey. It really started in the late 1980s when I was looking for answers for myself, Mary Ellen told me. I was having really extreme moods, a lot of deep, deep depression. I needed to find out how other people were dealing and coping and getting on with their lives with these kinds of things going on, these kinds of moods. After I was discharged from the hospital, I asked my doctor, how do people cope? The doctor admitted he really didn't know. Copeland continued, I thought a lot about it, and I thought that the way to get this information was asking people like my mother, who was hospitalized for years, and others who have gone through this and figured out how to cope and gotten their lives back. She designed a study, recruited more than a hundred volunteers, and began compiling data about what they thought had helped them. And I saw a structure to it, she said, that there were five key recovery concepts everyone talked about. Hope, personal responsibility, education, self-advocacy, and support. What evolved from this research was WRAP, which has become the best-known proactive peer support model in existence, shown to be effective in research studies and used by millions of people around the globe. WRAP provides a format of identifying risks and symptom patterns, considering and assembling recovery tools, keeping track of what has or hasn't worked in the past, identifying supportive people, networks, and environments, clarifying priorities and preferences to loved ones in events of crisis, and helping to frame thinking about goals. It can be used and revised to best serve the person who designs it. The essential insight Copeland embodied in RAP is that there are strategies that help people cope, that someone with a mental health condition is the foremost expert on what works best for them.
and that taking agency over one's own recovery is one of the most powerful recovery tools there is. Copeland discusses WRAP in more detail in Chapter 17. Don't believe a negative prognosis. One of the core tenets of the recovery model is that recovery is possible. With the right care tools, someone with a mental health condition can find their way to mental health and well-being. The premise is not just theoretical. Even people who have been told their odds of doing so are low can recover and build fulfilling lives. One of the first important steps on your or your loved one's recovery journey is allowing yourself to think positive and long-term. Definitive negative prognosis are a dark thread in the history of the mental health field. And unfortunately, even today, some care providers have not yet adopted a recovery-oriented mindset. Some of the people who share their experiences in this book faced debilitating prognoses and chose to fight for their own recovery anyway. Chrissy Barnard, a white 40-year-old living in Superior, Wisconsin, was one of them. Chrissy now works as a certified peer specialist and as the grant project coordinator for Douglas County Behavioral Health Crisis Response. She has a meaningful purpose, a strong community, a partner, and a dog. She told me she'd lost all of these things earlier in her mental health journey. Her recovery began in defiance of years of pessimistic pronouncements by the mental health care professionals who treated her. When I was committed to the state hospital, no one said recovery is possible, Chrissy told me. She went on to say, they acted like, you're never going to get out, actually. That was their attitude. They were like, you're always going to live with this. And I was like, what do you mean? Even when I was in my 30s at the state hospital, I got a piece of advice I never forgot. My doctor told me, you'll never get in a relationship because you have your own problems. His problems, our problems and sometimes kids' problems, and that really deterred me from relationships for a long time. Then Chrissy found the NAMI support group in Wisconsin, where people told her she could start her road to recovery, and that they could help. She recalled thinking, recovery? What do you mean? Is it possible? I was just floored. I couldn't believe that somebody would say that, because I was told it wasn't possible. I was totally shocked. And then I was like, Wow. Okay. Now what do I need to do next? If this is possible, give me the action steps I need to take to get there. NAMI Wisconsin introduced me to the recovery concept, defined it as best they could, and encouraged me to grow. A few years later, I was on the steering committee to help start the NAMI Douglas County Wisconsin affiliate, and I was just elected president this January. Chrissy has become a both-and thinker and teacher to others in her rural community. She described tools that made a difference for her, including dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. I think it's a combination of medication and DBT, because DBT helps me manage my stresses better, so when I feel low or something bothers me, I can manage the stress. Doing mindfulness for me each night is important. And then, medications really help me with my manias and long-term depressive episodes. And every night, I do my prayers, and I come up with five things I'm grateful for. 
I feel like that changed my whole outlook on things. Once I started thinking more positive, it got easier. And more and more good things just started happening. Charita Cole Brown, a 62-year-old widow who is black and the mother of two exceptional daughters, told me she has lived in bipolar one disorder recovery for more than 25 years and now serves on the NAMI Maryland Board of Directors. She was told during and after some difficult years at Wesleyan College in the 1980s that she should not expect to ever get better. I was committed to state facilities three times. I never felt as if anyone in authority was trying to empower me with positive coping strategies during these stays. At the end of each commitment, the doctor's prognosis for me was always, she's okay right now, but don't expect her to be okay in the long run. In 1982, a therapist told my parents in my present that given the severity and frequency of my manic and depressive episodes, I would likely need a custodian at some point. That was the psychological death knell over my life. Instead of accepting these negative prognoses, Charita took agency over her life, sought treatment, and with her pastoral counselor's assistance, created a personal wellness plan. Instead of needing a custodian, she eventually managed to care for her elderly parents. My recovery has exceeded my expectations. I have two daughters who have not been negatively affected by their mother's illness, as my own mother was by my grandmother's bipolar illness. I am amazed by and grateful for my extended period of recovery and am enjoying my life. Charita published her award-winning memoir, Defying the Verdict, My Bipolar Life, in 2018. How both and can work. Once you can believe that you can feel better and move ahead, it is wise to explore a combination of approaches, supports, and treatments that pull from the best of what both the medical and recovery models have to offer. Many of the people I interviewed did just that over the course of their recovery journey. You will hear more throughout the book. Here just to give you an idea of what is possible, people with different diagnoses and backgrounds from different parts of the country share stories about how they assembled their own multi-part both-and toolkits to move forward in life. The tools they found represent a small fraction of the tools available, but they may give you some ideas for what you might try on your own journey. Sierra Grandy, a bisexual law student from Minnesota in her mid-20s, serves as a presenter for NAMI's In Our Own Voice program. She speaks to groups of people at workplaces and in organizations about her own mental health journey teaching others, and starting conversations about mental health issues. As both an avid student of positive psychology and spirituality and a leader in the expanding peer movement, she educates others about mental health and how recovery support enhances and deepens the impact of medical model tools. Sierra believes that those medical model tools have affected her both positively and negatively. Treatment with ECT sometimes called shock treatment, saved my life, Sierra told me, but also caused unsettling memory lapses. She worked to find another treatment tool to help her depressive symptoms and learned via a newspaper clipping her mother sent her about promising research on the effectiveness of a powerful anesthetic called ketamine. Ketamine's potential is still being researched, and so far, 
it has only approved by the FDA in the form of a ketamine derivative called esketamine, administered as a nasal spray to be used as an adjunct to other antidepressants to treat people with treatment-resistant depression. Sierra found that a combination of talk therapy and as-needed ketamine treatments was the right course of medical model treatment for her. Ketamine helps the depression. How I've explained it in the past is, ketamine has helped me see neutral and then pull myself up from the pit into a neutral or even a positive space, if that makes sense. It didn't get me to neutral. I had to get me to neutral. But it gave me the rope to pull myself up. Ketamine did not do that for my anxiety. That I still have. I verbally process things. So just talk therapy in general is really helpful. Group therapy is also helpful. I'm a big fan of take what you can, leave the rest. Really, one of my biggest coping skills is reading positive psychology, religious, or spiritual books. On my bookshelf, you'll see everything from Ayurvedic to Buddhists to Christian. When my suicidal thoughts come back, I now go in for ketamine treatment. If I'm starting to feel overwhelmed or I'm drowning, I know my self-care plan. Many people report that a combination of medication and therapy help them manage symptoms and move forward, but that using other recovery tools made an important difference. John Henley, a 34-year-old musician and facilities crew member from Connecticut who reports he lives with schizophrenia, has put tools from several different categories, traditional medicine, new science, creativity, and family support into his recovery toolbox. They include clozapine, the only FDA-approved medicine for treatment-resistant schizophrenia, talk therapy that helps him critically assess his experiences, and family support. Yet, what John loves is music, which has also played a significant role in his recovery and helps regulate his thinking, as he told me. Clozapine's cool. You take the medications at nighttime, which makes you drowsy, leading to a great night's sleep. You wake up the next day. You feel really refreshed, like a computer. You turn it off, and then you turn it back on again the next day. Almost like the slate was clean from the day before. It resets you. Before I took clozapine, I experienced a lot of paranoia and people talking about me, hearing things on the radio, the television talking to me. Now it's almost like the clozapine gives you an ability to control your thoughts. Voices come up once in a while, but I'm able to control them. Another practice that I have is called rational thinking. Does this make sense? Does this have any foundation in reality? I stopped creating something that isn't real. I also feel like some of the cognitive training I did at the research center I went to for treatment helped my brain. My time there was very valuable. I am a musician now, so I try to practice every day. Acoustic guitar in the morning, bass guitar at night, and I think that's cognitive training as well. This is what I enjoy. This is what is going to make me feel good for the day. And just exercising my brain helps to have more control in the real world. And not let my thoughts get the best of me. Haley Amering of New York, a graduate student in her 20s, has also put together multiple tools for recovery. Unfortunately, she spent two years without effective medical tools because she was misdiagnosed and, as a result, 
was taking the wrong medication. Nevertheless, she found a recovery tools for her own. One tool was drumming, a creative outlet that she used both to express her emotions and regulate them. Drumming was a huge way that I coped with mental health. It definitely worked for me, for the mood dysregulation I found, especially when I was feeling negative, feeling angry. I was just able to just go and drum for however long I wanted, to some of my favorite albums. Playing the drums made me feel very connected just to the music itself. It was very cathartic for me. I never got lessons. I was self-taught. But then I went to college for drum set performance. I was having more and more mental health issues and I realized, hey, this isn't what I want to be going to school for anymore. But now what am I going to do? That part of my identity was just shattered for a little bit. Although drumming had been a good tool for mood regulation, Haley still felt she wasn't getting the full treatment she needed. It had been probably two years at this point that I had been on a bunch of antipsychotics and medication. And I was just lying in bed one night just thinking, this is not working for me. There's something else. I don't know what it is, but this diagnosis, this treatment is not working for me. Getting a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, BPD, marked a turning point for Haley, enabling her to find new, more effective tools and a new sense of identity and purpose. Oh my god, everything just clicked for me, which I'm so grateful for, because it's not like that for everyone. I immediately wanted to research everything about it to become a master in all things BPD. It was very relieving for me. The most reassuring aspect was feeling as though I could trust my therapist, that it was possible for these symptoms to go into remission. It was just knowing that it was possible, that there was going to be a plan, and that it was going to make more and more sense, especially if I dedicated myself to understanding it. I had gone to group therapy, which was DBT-based, though I didn't realize it, about six months before my diagnosis. I realized, wow, this is working, and it's helpful. It's not what I expected it to be. Then we started practicing more and more DBT things. Haley has worked with an advocacy and support group called Emotions Matter to raise awareness and support for others living with BPD, and also as an intern for NAMI in New York State. She told me she values talking about her experience as a means to let someone know that they aren't alone and that they're not the only one going through it. Trevor McCauley of Michigan discovered his difficulties when he was in college using a medication that wasn't right for him. He also ended up discovering a new path to building a life he loves. By the end of September, I started on Prozac to treat what they believed was depression. Then, in the beginning of November, strange stuff started happening where I could not sleep or eat normally and was talking a lot. That's when the manic stuff started creeping in. I didn't know that's what it was. I was just living my life. I didn't sleep for three or four nights, and then I knew something was wrong. I called my dad and I said, come pick me up. I need to go somewhere. Trevor was admitted to a hospital and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 
he left college and found himself back in his family home. He had lost all his momentum and wanted to get going somewhere. In addition to a medication regimen that was helpful, his recovery began with water and movement. I would bike or walk to the YMCA. Swimming became my baptism, my healing. Swimming in that pool, it was just water. It was movement. I felt like I was going somewhere. And so, after all these small little pieces started going into place, then it's like, okay, well maybe I can handle going to work. I didn't even have my driver's license yet, so I can walk to work. And then it gets to be about going to the library and finally reading books again. One book made a pivotal impact. I found an old copy of The Power of Positive Thinking. I absorbed it. I believed in it to the point that I would take quotes from the book or quotes from the Bible that are in the book, and I would write them down on cards and stuff them in my back pocket, and I would walk a half mile to Kroger, a supermarket, where I found my job. And the only thing that would motivate me to keep going to that store, even though I felt terrible still, was to take those flashcards out and read and recite them. I would just absorb it and believe it. And it would be the gasoline to my tank. That's how I got to work and figured out I could actually work again and that I could make some money. Trevor went on to reflect about the incremental changes he made. So I just incrementally built up this life where, eventually, I could do all those things that I was doing before my manic episode. I could actually be functional. And I eventually did go into a classroom setting again. I eventually built a life. But it was all about starting quietly and finding that creative self. And then finding a way to relate to my world creatively. And finding that traction in the pool. Finding exercise as a healing mechanism. That's how it really began for me. Trevor used professional and medical tools, and he also found other creative recovery tools to help advance his momentum toward a life he wanted. He is now married with children, employed, and loves the outdoors. Josh Santana, a 25-year-old youth community educator and real estate agent in Massachusetts who was born in Puerto Rico, told me he has been able to integrate his Latino heritage while growing up in the United States, as well as thrive as a gay member of the LGBTQ community. Josh used the traditional medical tools like psychotherapy and medication in his recovery, but he also found an active, adorable, four-legged recovery tool, a dog he named Coda. A Coda is like an additional part of music at the end to signal it's rounding out, Josh explains. She rounds me out, you get it? People who live with bipolar disorder benefit from keeping a regular daily schedule, but for many people, including Josh, who is a musician and a graduate student, establishing that regularity isn't easy. He found that having a dog helps. I invested all my focus on CODA. As someone with ADHD, it was one of the things that I could hyper-focus on. I don't regret it because I get comments day in and day out about how well she's trained how impressive some of the tricks are that I've taught her, and all the other stuff I've been able to focus on with her. She helps me a lot, from managing my sleep, to eating regularly, to exercising, and getting fresh air. These things help me maintain my bipolar episodes too. 
One of the things that I knew about bipolar before being diagnosed is that routines and regularity are very important, and here I am experiencing that firsthand. Josh told me that Coda had three previous owners, but they couldn't handle her energy, but this didn't deter him. He recalled, I worked on her diligently, and in return, she helped me form new habits and routines, like falling asleep at a reasonable hour that gave back to me more than she can ever know. Even beyond this, there was a time I had an anxiety attack and was crying and panting on the floor of my room for like five minutes straight. Coda's reaction was very interesting. She seemed really confused and was pacing back and forth while nervously whimpering. In order to comfort her, I brought her over and said, it's okay, it's okay. And once I started comforting her, then I sort of started coming out of it too. For Josh, daily regulation is important. Suzanne Vogel Sibelia, a 63-year-old married psychiatrist and mother of five who reports living with bipolar disorder, learned to manage the seasonality of her symptoms as she was going through college and medical school. I'd learned that if I just gutted it out until about April, I got better spontaneously and the world was right again until the next winter. Every winter, I would get seriously, psychotically depressed, and by April 1, I was okay again. I realized when I went to college that I was going to make sure that I took classes in the spring that were heavily loaded with final papers and final exams. Jeanette Berkowitz is a 63-year-old heterosexual white woman with bipolar disorder. She lives in central New Jersey and was born into a Jewish family. Having struggled with recurrent suicidal thoughts, she is now a peer specialist, designing and facilitating creative arts workshops for people dealing with mental health conditions. Janet has relied heavily on her medical model tools, including medication in both CBT and EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, but she found that integrating theater and art into her recovery was essential. Three days after I was home from the hospital, I was determined to take my life because I knew my husband, Phil, would be out of the house. That morning, before I opened my eyes, I heard the words, suicide denied, in my head. I opened my eyes, and I knew God was talking to me, and I said, all right, I'll take my life tomorrow. And for several days, in a row that kept happening when I awoke. Then, soon after that, I had a lucid dream of me leading a workshop on suicide prevention with teens. I woke up and I said, Phil, we have to do something about this. I have a feeling that a relationship will only work if we work together on suicide awareness. Together, they designed a workshop on suicide prevention called Suicide Denied, Taking Suicide Out of the Closet using creative arts, games, interactive exercises, art, and writing. I went to the self-help center where I worked and I had attended as a client and asked, can I do this workshop here? It was such a success that it popped me right out of the suicidal thoughts. Afterward, someone came up to me and said, you saved the life today. You saved my life. So I noticed that if a long period of time went by during which we didn't do any of this work, I would start getting suicidal again. I'd say, Phil, we've got to do another workshop, 
and it would pull me right out of it when we did. We started teaching and asking if we could teach at different self-help centers. We traveled with our workshop and presented at conferences. Everywhere we went, people were blown away by what we were doing. Since then, I've created many other workshops involving this topic and mental health in general. Sasha Biesi, the proud mom of one daughter and lots of animals who lives in the Texas Hill Country, underwent ECT to help her with severe depression and then had cognitive problems related to it. But her need to improve her thought process would ultimately lead to her discovery that baking was a wonderful recovery tool for her. After I had electric shock therapy, I weighed less than 100 pounds and I couldn't remember my daughter's name. I had this recipe box and since I'm trying to remember things, I started baking. I'm going through my grandmother's recipe box. The handwriting is familiar. My grandmother is familiar. Nothing else is familiar to me. I couldn't even find my way to the store, but I knew I needed to gain weight, get healthy again, and start working on my memory. I used baking as a way not to only heal myself physically, but it was also this mental thing too, where I'm trying to relearn how to hold more than one thing in my brain. There are so many treasures in this box, things that I remember my grandmother making for us. I always remember my grandmother had distinctive handwriting, and so I found that super comforting during that time when nothing made sense to me. My father had just passed away. My cousin had just killed himself. I had just split from my husband. I had just had electric shock therapy. Nothing made sense. But this handwriting on this card, and my partner at the time telling me, just keep going, just keep baking, just keep cooking, just keep doing it. I found my way out of the dark. Sasha's Bakery, Skull and Cake Bones, which she co-owns with her partner for, of 12 years, has an electric bolt on the logo to remind her that it was her capacity to find a way to overcome side effects of ECT that helped her to become a baker. She is eloquent about what recovery means to her. For me, it's the difference between trying to avoid living with something and embracing living with something. In terms of recovery, what that looks like to me is this. I'm taking my meds, not screaming at anyone. I'm living with my mental illness. It's not dragging me around by my tail. It looks like getting up every day and deciding to breathe and to do my tool bag of whatever I need that day because every day is a different day. It's like getting on a surfboard and riding the waves. Lloyd Hale, who now runs a peer support organization in South Carolina, told me he took a clozapine for many years, then was able to slowly taper off that medication. He also used peer support extensively. Lloyd started fasting to connect to his father, who is Muslim, and found unexpected recovery benefits. Through fasting, I found a clear mind. It strips me of all the garbage that I carry around all the time, and it helps me narrow in on what's truly important. Meaning, the Swiss rolls that I love so much that I go to get from the store all the time are not important. The time that I spend watching this television program, the same time every day, every night, in the grand scheme of things, it's just not important for my well-being. 
it really narrows things down and it strips me of all that stuff that I carry around as though it's important. These stories show us that people find a way. Today, there are more tools available than ever before to help people manage symptoms, grow in self-awareness, find support, and create fulfilling lives while living with a mental health condition. Again, the stories in this chapter represent only a very small number of the endless variety of pathways to recovery. They also reveal that, for each person, it took time and patience to figure out the best route for them. There are no one-size-fits-all solutions, and finding the tools most useful for you is neither simple nor quick. Being open to learning, being willing to try something different, and being persistent may be the most valuable recovery tools of all.